at Acts chapter 2. Uh, we left off, uh, this is our second, our third study, and uh, the, just the beginning of chapter 2. We left off right in the middle of uh, the verses that we're focused on. Let me reread them, the first four verses of chapter 2, and we'll pick up where we left off. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll get to the detail in verse 4 of what it meant that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But so far, last week, and then we're going to try to finish this up uh, this week, we're focused on the buildup in the events of that moment to what actually happened as they opened their mouths and began to speak, and uh, the miracle that took place as they began to speak. What we're focused on are the, what we would call the phenomena that are associated with uh, the events of that day, and that is that there's some details in these verses, we, we, uh, I connected specific questions to these details in, and uh, in our study attempted to answer each one of those to bring new understanding, a, a new level of perspective about the events of that day. The first detail that we focused on was that the events of that day happened suddenly. Second, we focused on the source or the origin of what happened, meaning that uh, there something happened that came from heaven and they recognized it as coming from heaven. Uh, third, that there was a, a, a unique and special sound. And why is it that the Lord chose that sound to be the sound of a mighty rushing wind? And then the next detail we focused on was why did that sound in terms of their experience and perception fill the entire house? And then where we stopped we didn't make it this far in verse 3. And let me reread verse 3 because that'll be the focus of our study today. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So it was, uh, it was not my intention to not cover verse 3 last week, but it's one of those things where, um, you know, the Lord knew how far I would actually get. It's to my advantage, and hopefully it is to yours as well, that I didn't get quite that far because now I have a, a whole study to um, more, even more fully develop the details in verse 3. So I want to ask some more questions about that and uh, try to answer them to bring clarity in our study. The questions that I want to focus on today is this. Why an image in their perception? This is now the first the, the first phenomenon was an audible phenomenon. They heard a sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now they actually see something with their eyes. I don't think this was a vision experience. You know, in, in Scripture, there are, um, there are experiences that God gives to, to chosen individuals, mostly prophets throughout his word, where they will be caught up in a visionary kind of state uh, we don't know exactly what that is, but where they see something, perceive something with their eyes that 
that ordinary human vision cannot see or perceive. Uh, I don't believe this was a vision experience. I believe this was actual um, uh, a visible phenomenon as they saw a, a fire appear in the room. So the question is, why did the Lord choose to uh, associate not just the sound of a wind, but the vision or the, the sight of fire? Uh, and then second, why was it divided fire? Why, why not just one giant flame in the center of the room? Um, and then the third detail connected to that, why tongues of fire? Because that detail is added and it's something we're not meant to overlook. And then why did the fire, the divided tongues of fire, rest on each one of them? And then the final question is, is this meant to be in the exact way that it happened to them? Is it meant to be an experience for all believers who would follow them uh, all the way up to you and I today? So I'm going to attempt to uh, answer each one of those questions. So the first one is, why did the Lord choose the imagery of fire on that day? Let's head back, if we could, from Acts, uh, like we did last time as we were looking at the, uh, the phenomenon of wind. Let's look back in the book of Exodus this morning. I'm going to look at several passages in Exodus. The first one is near the beginning of the book in chapter 3, a, a famous story, a very familiar story. This is the Lord's first meeting with Moses. Verse 1, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the prince, the priest, excuse me, of Midian, and he led his flock, Moses did, to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and uh, we will be studying, we're not quite there, but we will be soon, as we're studying in our Thursday night studies in Christ in the Old Testament, this is one of the great events in Old Testament history that uh, belong to a category of the Lord's dealings with his people that we call Christophanies or Theophanies. The word is a, it's from a, a Greek word. It simply means, Theophany simply means an appearance of the Lord. And a Christophany is an appearance of Christ. So <clears throat> what we believe, of course, is that Christ existed before his birth in Bethlehem and he was on site and personally interacting with his people throughout the Old Testament time period but chose in specific moments special circumstances to actually personally appear in a particular way to his people this is one of those appearances and here he's identified not as an angel of the Lord, but a, a, a subtle but important distinction, the angel of the Lord. And I, I won't take you through all of the, we'll do that in our Thursday studies, I won't take you through all the proofs of why this angel of the Lord is actually the Lord himself, but that's who it actually is. This is Christ the Lord appearing to Moses, and he chooses to appear to him in a particular way. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, eh, we'll turn aside to see this great sight. Why this, why this bush or the bush is not burned. And as he turns aside, 
the Lord begins an interaction with him that, that uh, represents the Lord's special calling and assignment to Moses to return to Egypt to deliver the people of God. So my question is, as the Lord chooses to appear to Moses here and reveal himself to Moses in his great purposes, why does the Lord appear to him in the visible expression or form of a flame of fire? The angel of the Lord, who is the Lord himself, was there and present and making himself known. But the way he made himself known was in a phenomenon of a burning flame. And that flame happened to be associated with or localized in one specific desert bush in the Sinai wilderness. And what's clear in the telling of the story is that it's a, it's a spiritual flame, not a physical flame. How can we know that with certainty? Because the bush wasn't actually consumed by the flame like it would be if it was a natural flame. It is a spiritual flame, and that flame is in some important way that's not fully revealed here, just hinted at, that flame is associated with the presence of the Lord himself. All right, let's look at another one. This one also familiar to everyone, uh, Exodus 13, a little bit later in the story, of course. This is in relationship to the judgment of the Lord that was poured out upon Egypt in the form of 10 specific great judgments. We call them the 10 plagues. And just following the last, the 10th of those plagues, we read this portion, chapter 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day. Um, The them here is the children of Israel who are being led now by, yes, Moses, he's on site. He's the personal, physical, human representation of the Lord's purposes. But here in verse 21, it's not just Moses who's leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. It is the Lord himself. The Lord went before them, meaning the Lord is there. He's present and he is making his presence known in a particular symbolic way, an actual way, but it has symbolic substance to it. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And what that means simply is for the duration of their long journey, they didn't anticipate at this moment, didn't expect that their journey would be nearly this long. Um, Best estimates are the walk from where they were located in Egypt to where they were heading to the promised land. Uh, The walk is even at somewhat of a moderate pace should have been no longer than one month, maybe six weeks at most, given that there were, you know, even children involved in this walk. But that one month to six week long journey ended up stretching for 40 years. And you understand there are, there are spiritual reasons for that. But for the duration of that entire 40 year period, the pillar of fire, and the pillar of cloud, same pillar, just appeared to be a pillar of cloud in the daylight and 
became revealed or became more clearly known as a pillar of fire at nighttime. Uh, it did not depart from before the people for that entire 40-year period. So the Lord is making himself known primarily, just like he made himself known to Moses in the phenomenon of fire, he's making himself known to his people in the same way in the pillar of fire. So that at any moment, children of Israel, if they're, if they're camped in any particular location in the wilderness and they fall asleep and they get up in the morning, or, or let's say they, they just want to be assured in the middle of the night. They get up out of their tent and they, they, they head outside. They're going to see the pillar of fire, which was right there in the midst of the camp of his people uh, and visible by day and by night for each one of those 40-year days. All right, let's look at another one, chapter 19 now. We're just a little bit further into their journey. And the Lord has now, by this pillar of cloud and fire, he's led them to the foot of a specific mountain in the Sinai wilderness, and that mountain will later become known as Mount Sinai. And we're going to read what happens now, starting in verse 16. The Lord has warned Moses and told him, look, I have a special thing that I'm about to do, and I'm going to give you three days. In those three days, I want you to go down and I want, you to, I want you to get the people ready for what they're about to experience. And now we're reading the events of that third day. Uh, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. That loud trumpet blast was not any natural trumpet that any one of the children of Israel were blowing in the camp. This was a trumpet that was coming from the cloud itself. And in that sense, we could affiliate it or associate it with a a heavenly trumpet, so to speak. A very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. The idea of their trembling is that all that they've just experienced is so dramatic and so powerful that it is shaking them to their core. Verse 17, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And of course, as the story unfolds, um, what's going to happen next is that Moses is going to enter that cloud and he's going to uh, be on the summit of the mountain. He's going to be there in the presence of the Lord for some 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord is going to reveal to him the, the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone written by the commandments written by the finger of God himself. And then, in addition to that, the Lord is going to reveal to Moses the blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle, which is going to be God's house in the midst of his people for these next 40 years. What I want you to catch, though, is that in these three examples from Exodus, first, revealed to Moses individually, just associated with one single bush in the wilderness, the Lord reveals himself in flame. Then, 
The Lord leads the people of God out of Egypt by the appearance of a, a pillar of cloud by day, but inside of that cloud, a, a powerful fire that is burning continuously without ever being extinguished for 40 years. And then finally, at the foot of Mount Sinai, the people are brought out to meet with the Lord and the Lord descends upon the mountain in a cloud, meaning that same exact pillar of cloud and fire that had led them so far in the wilderness and would continue to lead them as they break camp and go to other locations. That same pillar of fire and cloud now descends upon Mount Sinai and rests upon the mountain. And Moses, of course, is going to enter the cloud. So why the imagery of fire associated with the presence, the power of the Lord in these circumstances? Fire is the best, and of course the Lord would choose the best to, to signify this. It's the best symbol of the Lord's presence because it is a symbol of what we can describe as his transforming glory. There is a glory in the presence of the Lord, and that glory changes everything that it touches, just like fire changes and transforms everything that it touches. Now, the, <clears throat> we'll get into this detail a little bit deeper in trying to answer the next couple of questions. Second is, why on the day of Pentecost, and let's, let's just catch this detail again, head back over to Acts 2. Verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Why was the fire in their experience divided? So it would make sense for the Lord, just like he revealed himself in fire to his people at the key moment of old covenant history, it would make sense in this key moment of now developing new covenant history for the Lord to reveal himself in fire because that would make clear to his people that the same Lord that appeared to Moses is the same Lord that's now interacting with his people here in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And the Lord's presence is, is represented in both cases by fire. But in all of the events that we read in the book of Exodus and in Old Covenant history, the fire was singular, one single flame. So in the burning bush experience, there was one flame associated with one bush. It wasn't like 17 bushes caught fire that day in the wilderness. It was just a single bush. And then the pillar of cloud and fire that led them out of Egypt through the wilderness and eventually into the promised land was a single pillar, single fire. And of course, that same pillar then rested on Mount Sinai and Moses entered into it and you have a single big fire. We know it's big because the cloud was big enough to completely envelop Moses. And as we saw, in fact, we may reread these passages that we read last week in a few minutes, where when the tabernacle was completed in its construction, 
and the temple was completed in its construction, that cloud of the Lord's presence settled upon both of those structures and filled the entire structure. But one big flame. So my question is, on the day of Pentecost, why wasn't it one big flame of the Lord's glorious presence that was revealed to visibly as a phenomenon to the eyes of the 120 disciples and of course the 11 apostles, the 12 apostles now as Judas has been replaced at the end of chapter one. Why, why is it not one single giant flame in the room? Kind of in the center of the room and we're all around the perimeter and just amazed at this giant flame in the room. Why divided flames? Well, let's go back to Exodus and look at one more passage in chapter 24. So it's a fire in Exodus and a fire in Acts. And the fire is associated with the Lord's presence in both cases. So there is a similarity, a very important similarity, between the experience in the Old Covenant and the experience in the New Covenant. Telling us it's the same Lord, the same spirit, the same powerful presence, the same transforming presence in both situations. But there's a difference, and the difference is in Exodus, it's one single flame, and in the upper room that day in the book of Acts, it's a divided flame, which ends up being obvious over the head of each one of the disciples in the room. And remember how many were in the room? 120. So now we have 120 flames in the upper room rather than one single flame. Um, So there's a difference now, an important difference between what happened in the Old Covenant and what happens now in the New Covenant. Exodus 24 will help us to understand that difference. We're going to read, starting in verse 15, Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud, that's the pillar of cloud of the Lord's presence, the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. So here we have an explanation of the connection I drew between the symbolism of fire and the actuality of what that symbolism is describing to the people of God, which is the glory of God. Uh, The Lord, through how Moses writes the passage here, actually makes that connection for us. In one verse, verse 15, it's described as the cloud, which is a cloud cloud and fire. And in verse 16, that cloud is called the glory of the Lord. So the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now there's a detail here I can't pass up. It's not really the main point of our study this morning, but I can't read that and just leave it laying there without mentioning it. Where else do we see in scripture a pattern of six and seven days? Genesis chapter one, the original work of creation. God made everything that he made in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. Rest is a key concept in all that we're studying. It's indicated here by the detail in verse 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. 
meaning for this six-day period, the Lord moved unto the summit of Mount Sinai and settled there, rested there, lived there for that six-day time period. But why did he do it for six days? And then on the seventh day, called to Moses when he could have done it on the fourth day or he could have done it on the first day or he could have done it on the 20th day. He does it in this six slash seven day pattern in order to strike the mind and the perspective of Moses and the people of God if they're paying attention as we should be along with them now. This is a work of new creation. God is about to do something new in the earth that he's never done before and it's going to change everything. In this case, it's the revelation of his law and it's going to change the life experience of the children of Israel for all of the days that will ever follow um, from, from this point forward. So it's a new creation event. Verse 17. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. Um, why, why can fire appropriately be called a devourer? Because it consumes whatever it touches. So if it, if it touches a, if a fire is, is burning and it touches a, a bush, it consumes the bush. If a fire is burning and it touches a tree, it consumes the tree. If it touches grass, it consumes the grass. If it touches a house, it consumes the house. It's a devouring fire. And that image, of course, points to how when we touch God's fire, God's presence, it changes us. It devours something in us and transforms it into something else something different. Now, natural fire is a destroyer, not just a devourer. It destroys as it devours. Spiritual fire does exactly the opposite. It devours what is unlike God and leaves only a transformed thing that is more like God than it ever would be had it not touched or been touched by the fire of God. So the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And then this detail, verse 18. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses entered the cloud. What was in the cloud? The glory, the fire. Moses entered the fire. Now, this is a a significant thing because the fire was singular. And in order to get in relationship to that fire in the way that God wanted him to be in relationship to that fire, he had to enter the fire. So the similarity between this event and what happens on the day of Pentecost to the disciples in the upper room is that fire is involved in both cases. The presence of the Lord is represented and the symbolism of fire is is present in both cases. But there's a distinction and a big difference, a huge difference between what Moses does in relationship to the fire and what the 120 disciples do in relationship to the fire on the day of Pentecost. In Moses' day, one single fire, and in order to get in right relationship to the fire, he has to enter the fire. And of course, later he comes out after the end of 40 days, and he's somewhat, but not really entirely and not permanently, he's somewhat transformed by the experience of being in the fire for those 40 days. What's the change in Moses as he now comes down the mountain? His face is shining. 
It, is it because he used some you know, special moisturizer on his face as he came down the mountain, put some coconut oil on there, and you know, he's now shining? He is having been for 40 days and 40 nights in the direct presence inside the fire of the Lord's glorious presence. He has, in a sense, soaked up a measure of God's glory so that it is changing him and transforming him. But as he comes down the mountain and the children of Israel see that his face is shining, shining so bright that they cry out and say, you're blinding us. You know, put a, put a veil, a covering so that you don't blind us. And so he puts a veil over his face. But from that point forward, that light begins to slowly but surely fade so that he doesn't have to wear a veil for the remainder of the 40 years in the wilderness. Meaning he's, he's been... He's been in the direct presence of the Lord. He's been changed by his experience, but it's not a permanent, lasting, and enduring change. It's a fading change. Why? Because the law cannot permanently change us in the way that we need to be changed. So now we're in the day of Pentecost, and let's head back over there. I've read this two or three times already. I think we can do with one more reading of this key verse. Chapter 2, verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and, our key word, rested. But where did the fire, the tongues of fire rest? Rested on each one of them. So the similarity between what they experienced and what Moses experienced was the same Lord, the same Spirit, the same fire, the same power, the same presence. But there's a huge difference. Moses entered the fire and then left the fire. Do these people on this day enter the fire? No. The fire enters them. And it rests upon them, which is the signification of this is a new and permanent relationship between the fire and the people. A distinct and different kind of relationship. Not a temporary relationship. As wonderful as it is, Moses had an experience that no one in all of human history had had before that day he went into the cloud and spent that 40 days and 40 nights in the the fire presence of the Lord on the summit of Mount Sinai. No one had ever had that experience and no one ever had that experience after him. It was unique. It was special. He was privileged. He was honored. But it was temporary and it was fading. It would not last. This is a permanent experience and different because of who is entering who. Moses entered the presence of the Lord and then left the presence of the Lord. Here, the presence of the Lord rests upon the people, signifying that he is now entering and moving into them. And he rests upon them, signifying that this is now his new and chosen dwelling place. Now, this is the same imagery as we saw in our study last week, And I'll just reference these passages. One of them was in Exodus chapter 40. The other was in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And we focused on how one was the description 
later in the Moses story of, of Moses constructing, and he, of course he had assigned and special help uh, as the Lord chose uh, uh, specially gifted Israelites to help him in the work, but he was in charge of the work and he, he completed the work in chapter 40 of Exodus of the construction of the tabernacle. And then the passage in Chronicles is focused on Solomon and his special assignment to build a new house for the Lord, a greater house for the Lord, a more permanent house for the Lord, but still not a fully permanent house. And that, of course, is the stone temple in Jerusalem replacing the tent that Moses uh, had constructed in the wilderness. And in both cases, when Moses finished the work of the tabernacle and later Solomon finished the work of the temple, the next thing that happens is the cloud of the Lord's presence settles directly on top of the tabernacle and directly on top of the temple and then fills the entire house of the tabernacle and the entire house of the temple just like the sound of the mighty rushing wind filled the entire house on the day of Pentecost. The Lord signifying that he's moving into his house. The distinction, of course, is that in the tabernacle, the house was not a permanent house. The Lord lived in the tabernacle for years, but eventually he moved out of the tabernacle in order to move in to the temple. And then he lived in the temple for a much longer period of Israel's history than he had ever lived in the tabernacle. He lived in the temple for hundreds of years. And then he eventually moved out of the house that was the temple. And in the great events, as we've studied in in some detail in our study in Matthew 24, that temple was eventually dismantled by the Lord's prophesied purposes as the Lord Jesus said it would happen in the great events of 70 AD so that not one single stone was left attached to another and the Lord signifying that, that I am done with that house. So there came a point where he was done with the tabernacle. There came a point where he's done with the temple. There will never, ever be a point where he is done with the house that he now moves into as signified by the events of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. This is the Lord moving into his third, his new, his permanent home. Not just permanent for the duration of history here in this present world as we know it, but this is a home that will last forever and ever. Peter describes it this way. Let's go over to the book of First Peter. Chapter 2. Paul makes his own description using the same imagery in Ephesians chapter 2, but I'll read uh, Peter's account. And we're reading here from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, where he starts the chapter talking about the experience of being, really at the end of chapter 1, the experience of being born again. But what's meant to happen immediately after you're born again, which is that you need to grow up in the Lord. So he says in verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, in terms of new birth experience, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, 
that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Meaning, if you've really been saved, you need to grow after your salvation experience. Verse 4, he introduces an image now to this experience of growing in the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, that's referring to Christ himself, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Meaning, human beings rejected Christ and ultimately crucified him, but all the time, he was the most precious person in the world in the eyes of his father and was chosen for a unique and special purpose, a saving purpose. Verse 5 now links it to you and me. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. This is referring back to Christ again. A cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Peter very clearly and and very purposefully links the imagery of the old covenant temple, the stone temple that Solomon constructed, to the new covenant house of the Lord, which is similar because both are a house and both are a temple, both are constructed of stone, but in the old covenant, it's a physical, natural stone house, and in the new covenant, it's a new and distinctly different kind of house. It's a spiritual house that's constructed of spiritual stones who are actually, each individual stone is a person, a person that has come to know the Lord, who has been born of God's spirit. And then what does God do when that structure is put in place in the way that serves his purpose? He fills that house with the holy fire of his presence and signifying by that that he has moved in to his house. What stands apart in this third house, as I've already stated, is that while the other two houses served a temporary purpose in history in redemptive history the third and greatest house which is the church is a house that god will never leave never abandon never move out of now uh, in this we've answered why did the fire rest on each one of them as opposed to just a big fire in the center of the room it's signifying that god has moved into each one of them Each one of them, as a living stone, has a special place in the new structure of the church that the Lord is building through the activity of his son. But I skipped over one detail, and we'll have to head one last time back to Acts 2. And that is, I had asked the question, why tongues of fire? Why tongues of fire? We'll read 3 and 4 together now. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I believe there are two reasons why the Lord caused them to interpret what their eyes were seeing of the flame of God's presence as as it was divided among them and rested on each one of them. And we don't know exactly what that looked like, but 
most likely what's being described is that there was a little spiritual flame that was visible over the head of each one as opposed to one giant flame in the center of the room. But why is it described as a tongue of fire? One is on a practical level, the imagery of tongue can be similar in its appearance to a flame. When, a, uh, when you, some of you just recently came back from camping, I'm sure you built some fires, some campfires. Can't go camping without a campfire. And as that fire is burning, you know, uh, the, the individual flames of the fire kind of wave and wag somewhat similar to the physical tongue in our mouths waving and wagging. So it, it links to the imagery of individual flames. But second, and this is purposeful, and it, it's actually kind of awkward, but the Lord wants us to notice in the awkwardness of the description the connection that he's drawing. And that is in verse 3, Luke, who writes this under inspiration of the Spirit of God, could have chosen the word flame, but he didn't. He didn't say, and divided flames as a fire appeared and rested on each one of them. There is a Greek word for flame that would have fit this imagery perfectly. He could have written it that way, but instead of calling it a flame of fire, he calls it a tongue of fire on the head of each one. And the word that he chooses that's translated tongue is the same identical Greek word that's found in verse four, where we read, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Now, are we meant to read verse four and say, they began to speak in other flames? No, but he's drawing that association. So what's the point there? When we read, and we're gonna talk about what they actually said and why it's significant and why a large segment of the, of the modern Christian community has completely misunderstood the purposes of God here. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. But as they began to speak in other tongues, what are we meant to understand by the description? They spoke in other tongues. What does it mean to speak in a tongue? Any tongue, I don't care which tongue. What does it mean to speak in a tongue? A language. We even use that description still to this day. So I speak in the English tongue. Doesn't mean my tongue is genetically English. It means that my tongue has learned the English language from birth and beyond. And how many of you ever tried, you know, where you weren't born into it, you weren't raised as a child with it? How many of you have ever, as an adult, tried to learn another language? It's not easy, is it? Why? Because your tongue gets all twisted up because your tongue's not used to, to the unique muscular nuances of forming those kinds of words. It's used to certain kinds of words that you're familiar with from childhood. All right, so why did the Lord want his individualized presence resting on the head of each one of them to be associated in their minds with what is just about to happen to them where they're going to speak in other languages in some kind of mysterious and miraculous way. The idea here is he's linking his presence with his purpose. And this is a link that we spent weeks emphasizing at the end of our study in the Gospel of Matthew as we just not too long ago 
We're finishing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew is, is of course, those key verses that we call the Great Commission. And we drew the link that God's presence in your life is always meant to be associated with his purpose for your life. So there are two things in your relationship to the Lord. His presence in you and his purpose for you. If he is present in you, he has a purpose for you. And if you're not fulfilling his purpose for you, then there is no real reason for his presence to be in you. So here he chooses the imagery of his presence, which is an individual flame of fire over each one of their heads, to be directly associated with the unfolding purpose of God, which is just about to happen as they open their mouths and begin to speak. And we'll focus in our study next time on what is it they have to say and why what they have to say is the appropriate expression of this new spiritual fire that has come to live and dwell and work in them and through them. We have one last question to answer, and that is, is this an experience for all believers? Meaning, they had a unique and interesting, and really interesting, amazing set of experiences. They heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house. None of us have had that experience, have we? No. They saw individual flames of fire resting on the heads of each one of the 120 in that room that day. How many of you have ever seen that over the head of any other believer? Anyone? No, you never have. And this, just to help, you never will. You're not meant to. So does that mean that these 120 had an experience that only those 120 would ever experience and no one else gets to experience what they experienced for all of history to follow. So the the question, is this an experience for all believers? The only right way to answer that is it's a yes and no kind of thing. The no is this. These are the only people in all of history that have experienced the wind and fire phenomenon of the arrival of the Holy Spirit to fill their lives. If you read on in the book of Acts, which our plan is to do that, our plan is to eventually work our way through the entire book. And we're going to see in the chapters ahead, there are many other events where there are groups of people who are saved and groups of people who are filled with the Spirit of God and using the terminology that Jesus himself used, baptized with the Holy Spirit. There are many groups that will have a similar experience of the infilling of God's spirit, but not one single case later in the book of Acts after this one of a wind and fire experience. There's no more sound of a mighty rushing wind than any of the rest in the book of Acts. Even Paul the apostle doesn't have a wind and fire experience himself. So does that mean that Paul was never filled with the Holy Spirit like they were? Or that you and I can't be filled with the Holy Spirit unless we have a wind and fire experience. No, the phenomenon was unique for the first time because God was symbolically showing the new thing that he's doing in the earth. But he doesn't want us to get attached to the phenomenon. He wants us to understand the phenomenon. He wants us to gain perspective about what happens to us when we're saved and filled with his presence. But he doesn't want us to get hung up on the externals. 
He wants us to understand the internals of what it's really all about. So no, we won't have the same phenomenal experience, but yes, the same spirit, the same spiritual fire, the same power, the same transforming presence enters into the heart and life of each true believer so that God's purpose in them and God's purpose through them in their own assignment in his kingdom can be fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for what special thing you did for your people that day in order to open our eyes to see through their eyes, our ears to hear through their ears, and our hearts to be able to understand the fullness of what you've done in us like you did in them on that day and for each day for the rest of their lives and each day then for the rest of our lives as well, not only in this world, but for all of eternity to follow. And I thank you for the greatness of your work. Grant us understanding, grant us encouragement from the understanding that you give us. We thank you in the name of your son. Amen.